0: Welcome to BioChats, a podcast by AppColon Technology. My name is Kim Lung, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only AppColon's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming Dr. Kevin Smith, Chief Medical Officer at Loyola University Medical Center, also an Associate Professor in the Stritch School of Medicine. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about Kevin's career path from the time he decided to go to college, enter the medical profession, and how residency and everything went, why you chose not to do a PhD and instead do an MD, how you're still able to do research and continue to teach and be an educator while doing all your other responsibilities. This, of course, is my friend Kevin. We've known each other for over 20 years now, which is a pretty ridiculously long time met at Duke University uh, through a mutual friend, and then we uh, lived together and partied for about a year, and then we parted ways. But, uh, you know, throughout our lives, we've been able to reconnect, and we actually lived in the same area for quite a while before I moved back to California, and you remained in Chicago, and you're now the Chief Medical Officer at Loyola University Medical Center. And that's a really big time. I feel like you're probably the highest up of all of my friends in terms of there is literally no one above you, (laughs) except uh, probably for like investors and other admins. But
1: (laughs) essentially, you are the the Lord thy God of your your (laughs) profession here. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll take that as a compliment. You have some pretty successful and intelligent friends, so it's that's a, that's a big compliment.
0: Yeah, a lot of them are doing really great things. I have a few friends who are assistant and associate professors. They're tenure track. Like there, there's a few who are lawyers, uh, patent lawyers. Uh, there's a few who are obviously in industry and doing quite well for themselves. But uh, you actually head up a hospital. Maybe we can talk about that first. Let's start with a little bit about what it is that you do.
1: It's actually a great and more complex or answer than it really should be. When you look at my job description, it's sort of one thing, but I think um, as with any uh, administrative job, uh, it sort of becomes morphed into many different roles. And and in essence, I'm the head physician for the hospital and I act as a connection between our administrative leadership and our clinicians, primarily our physicians. And so, you know, I'm the connection when it comes to how physicians uh, care for the p- patients in a clinical manner um, and then how that connects to the administration. A lot of the work that I do is is related to how patients move through the system so either how they enter into our system how they move and progress towards being able to be discharged some of it is uh, also what do they do after they leave the hospital and then I also do a lot of work in in quality and safety so you know how to improve our quality metrics that are publicly reported uh, how to prevent things like uh, serious injuries or iatrogenic harm uh, that our p- patients experience um, you know that's what I spend quite a bit of my time doing as well it seems like
0: you probably, through your team, have to act in concert with a lot of insurance providers as, as well as the state of Illinois. Because my family and I, when we were in graduate school, we were under all kids because we couldn't really afford health insurance. And now through uh, the Affordable Care Act and you know the state-sanctioned systems, you you probably have to do a lot to try to keep health costs affordable for your patients and make sure they're getting the best care possible in your hospital.
1: Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, there's a whole arm of, you know, our administrative team that sort of deals with those issues. I mean, payer issues, It's a, there's a good and a bad, you know, we certainly see that getting approvals and prior authorizations and things like that has become much more challenging. At the same time is you know, we've seen that the state of Illinois is really committed to covering undocumented individuals, which makes our job in the health system a lot easier Previously, these individuals would sort of fall through the cracks. You wouldn't be able to get any type of payment many times from them. Many of them had to go sort of different routes over to either Stroger, where they receive really excellent care. But anytime one hospital is taking care of those patients, it crowds the system. But now as the state of Illinois started to expand Medicaid for undocumented patients, you know now we take care of them. A bunch of other health systems take care of it, which that's a good thing for patients.
0: I think once upon a time when you first started at Loyola, you were studying sickle cell. Are you still doing that or are you doing something else?
1: I highlight that as as one of my first major projects um, when I came into Loyola that I, I really think helped sort of catapult me to be able to obtain additional opportunities. We saw very high levels of healthcare utilization from just a handful of sickle cell patients who were our number one patients, and really that was because they lacked care outside of the hospital. So that we're really connected into the primary care networks, specialty clinics and hematology just aren't really set up for chronic disease management. Um, and we saw that as a need. Um, fortunately, I was able to partner with a nurse practitioner who had pediatric sickle cell experience, and was able to, to talk her into coming over on the adult side. And now, I mean, she's she basically runs that program, and we've turned it into the second largest program in the Chicagoland area behind UIC. So pretty proud of that, um, and really have substantially reduced healthcare utilization for this population again, it gets back to just quality of life and a betterment of life for these patients. In some cases, we're getting them actually back to being quote unquote normal, um, which is really all you can ask for some of these really serious chronic conditions. Glad
0: you said something like that, because one of the things that I've championed, like from the time I was in graduate school to just work with underrepresented minorities, I had a lot of classmates who were uh, people of color. And that was really encouraging to me. But we also recognized that there was, you know, a lack of accessibility to higher care. And that spoke to like an inability for the system to help those who needed it most because they couldn't afford the level of care. I'm kind of glad that you set up the program to allow that level of care to be accessible to those groups of patients. And since you're not doing the sickle cell as much anymore, is there other research uh, that you do at the hospital
1: while you teach and administrate and everything else that you do? I do um, work with different medical students um, as they have interest in research projects. And actually, I I am working on a research project for Sickle Cell where we're actually trying to quantify the success of our program when it came to decrease in utilization, decrease in cost, all those different things. So um, I have a really excellent medical student that um, is leading that project and I'm assisting. Other projects I've worked on in the past have been related to heart failure readmissions. You know, I have a student that I'm going to be meeting with soon to t- start talking about how we can take a better look at physician communication skills. You know, now it's sort of a wide range of topics that I work on that mostly fit into the sort of the quality and safety realm in, uh, in a different manner. Because
0: you are heading up such a large and talented team, you are able to dip your toes into many different fields uh, relating to medicine and healthcare.
1: What do you think your favorite project of all your associates? I think it depends on whether you're asking about research work or like safety work. And oftentimes you can team those up. I think that's one of the things that I'm really trying to push at Loyola um, that I don't think we've had in place is how do you actually develop a quality improvement project or a safety project into scholarly activity? For whatever reason, we just haven't really done much of it before. One of the projects that I've worked on recently that I really am excited about is uh, improving OR safety. We saw pretty high rates of serious safety events in our OR, and they were events that happen at all hospitals, but for whatever reason, we seem to have a cluster on it. And we recognized we needed to change the culture and really have invested a lot of time, energy, resources into that. And we've seen, at least last I was seeing, we've reduced serious safety events in the periop area by 80%. So in this case, we're talking about real benefits to our patients that our team has put in place. So I'm really excited about that. And now we're trying to work through how we can publish on that project, project on this, on the sickle cell work is probably my most exciting current project because you know we just have not had a chance to quantify our program success previously um but now we're working with our biostats colleagues uh in loyal university chicago the medical student really is doing a great job and so finally we get to order you know actually put some hard numbers around how we have done as opposed to just sort of anecdotes of improvement um and so i'm really excited to to be able to spread that and hopefully because of our success, other institutions might try to follow a similar model. I mean we didn't do anything brilliant. it was just to have a dedicated resource to care for these patients um, and other so other institutions could do the same thing. yeah, that makes a
0: lot of sense and it's actually really exciting um I'm glad you said that's about kind of across platform collaboration? Because you are, of course, affiliated with the university. And with that university comes not just the MDs, but also the PhDs. So do you actually get a lot of opportunities to work with the heads of, say, the immunology department or the cancer department or the neurology department and say, we can provide you with samples, or this is our insights on how this may affect patients in the long run? is there a particular
1: collaboration that comes to mind not as much myself but we do have this relatively new building called the Translational Science Building where we basically moved you know all of our lab people out of basements or other <laughs> other areas that they had in, in, in the old building and then moved into this new building, which is it's just a beautiful building. It's the, it's the most beautiful building we have on campus. All glass. The labs are beautiful. That whole intention is to try to bring together the school side and the medical center side for the betterment of healthcare. I, I have worked with um, some of the people that in uh, informatics on some projects. And then mo- most recently, I've worked with uh, some of the people from biostatistics. And that's been just an amazing collaboration. I mean, I a ton of respect for people that speak a language that I have a hard time understanding when it comes to all the aspects of biostats and the modeling. So that's been excellent. Um, we have done, uh, in, in some of the work that was done in, in uh, sepsis improvement, that was in collaboration between some of our pulmonary critical care physicians and also uh, the informatics PhDs. And that also has been pretty impressive work. One area that we also are are, uh, really strong at Loyola is bioethics. And so many of our physicians also will team with the bioethicists, usually PhDs. And we've had some really nice publications over the last couple of years, including one on why COVID vaccine mandates in transplant patients is actually an ethically appropriate requirement. You know, we still do a a fair amount of of basic science research, um, and certainly some of our physicians and even some of our chairs uh, interact with PhDs. I just don't do it as much. I haven't been in the lab in years, although I do still sometimes miss it.
0: In a way, your medical journey started in a lab. Well, you went to Vanderbilt and graduated from there, and then we met in North Carolina because you decided to work as a technician for a little bit. So what was the impetus behind that other than to just spruce up the
1: resume for the medical school? Yeah, I mean, that was that was certainly part of it. But I also, you know, I, I had an interest in seeing what the research side was like. Um, I didn't really do um, any basic science research in college. It was visual spatial research in biomedical engineering. And so I wasn't in a, you know, like a wet lab. So I wanted to give that a try to see what it was like, see if that could be a career path for me as well. And it was great, I, I had a, I learned a tremendous amount. And then actually when I went to medical school, I, I took a year off to do uh, research in a lab and I used the skills that I developed at the time as a lab tech and then really pushed forward a, a project that became a, a really great publication for us. Um, and so it all sort of just built on itself. And even though I don't do basic science research anymore, it, it's that understanding of experiments. It's uh, sort of the scientific thought process that I, st- I still use it. Um, in fact, when I'm collaborating with my lab colleagues, I feel like I can understand what they're talking about in the lab, why there's the turnaround times or where they are. And that comes all the way back to my time as a lab tech. Uh, so, you know, it's it again, it just sort of builds on itself. It's sort of interesting how our career paths go.
0: You spoke a little bit about the scientific process, the scientific method, the way we think about problems, because in my view, the Ph.D. was really about how to ask a question and how to find ways to answer it. Do you think there is a different application between how a medical scientist, and M.D., approaches a scientific method versus a phd or do you think that's very similar that's just like one of you has an m and the other has a PhD.
1: at least in my experiences i think it's pretty similar i mean i think an md and a phd may very well be coming from a different perspective but they still use a similar thought process they still arrive at a similar hypothesis and then sort of go through the test to determine if if the hypothesis is is correct. I don't know if I would notice a, a huge difference. I in fact I, I think that's the nice thing about MDs and PhDs is we sort of speak the same language. And so then it's if you can bring that the clinical applicable side into the conversations and then the PhDs, uh, you know, they may have a, a little bit stronger of the bench experience or of, of sort of the molecular experience that then team together and I think form a really great partnership. But I think that that thought process is the same, which helps that conversation a lot more. That's at least my experience.
0: And it probably helped you have more conviction in your career choice to pursue the medical doctorate rather than an MD PhD or a straight PhD. So could you speak a little more about like what your motivation was to become, you know, I like to call myself not that kind of doctor because I'm not. And the, you're the kind of doctor that actually directly helps people, whereas I'm the kind of doctor that looks at a problem
1: and plays with it until I can solve.
0: Or at least I was.
1: (laughs) I mean, we all we all fit together. I mean, if you look at, you know, the COVID vaccine, which will go down as one of the greatest inventions, I think, in modern medicine. And, you know, clearly it it was because of brilliant researchers that developed the process before we could actually bring it to market and, and be able to use it to save lives. So it's all related. You know, I think for me, the reason I chose an MD as opposed to like an MD, PhD or a PhD was simply what I wanted to do on a daily basis. So I, I did enjoy the lab. But the thing that I really enjoyed the most was taking care of patients and having those patient interactions. And so at the end of the day, if, if I thought about where was it that I wanted to spend the vast majority of my time and, you know, to be honest, I probably spend more time at work sometimes than I do at home. Being in the hospital felt very comfortable for me. Being, having an understanding of the hospital, it, it's a nice sort of fallback. That's what I really enjoy and how I think, um, as opposed to the lab where I enjoyed it, but it just wasn't a passion of mine, even though I, I certainly cherish everything I, I learned in those three years that I spent in a lab. You went to the University of North Carolina
0: for for medical school. It's obviously a very good school. And uh, I was wondering, because I have a lot of friends who actually did both. Some of them uh, were MDs, and then they transitioned to graduate school through the MD program because they applied. And then the rest of their, I guess, school career was essentially funded then. Some of them were MSTP students who went in knowing that they would be MD, PhD in their entire schooling and tuition, everything was funded. And then some decided, OK, after I did my PhD, now I'm going to go for an MD. And that was a very interesting choice for them. But I'm glad that they did it because uh, I think one of my friends became a dermatologist afterwards. Another went to like Mayo and, and decided to, to do an MD after uh, the University of Chicago. It's a very interesting choice, but I always kind of wondered, because I never got a chance to ask them, what was medical school like for you? And did you actually interact with a lot of the ones who were PhDs and then came into MD and then the MDs who came back from doing PhD and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, you know, medical school to me, I mean, I... I will be honest, is that I probably didn't study as much in college as I probably should have. Uh, so med, med school, you know, after taking a couple years off to do research, I, I was pretty determined that I was going to be studious. And even as a determined studious person, uh, I mean, the first two years, it's just overwhelming amounts of, of information. And so usually it was be studying, you know, every day into the night. And then even on Fridays and Saturdays, it's like studying until nine o'clock and then going out to see my friends and hanging out there. So, you know, it was just sort of on the, around the clock studying. And then once you go into the inpatient environment, I mean, you're getting there really early and staying late. And, uh, but, you know, it's, it's a, in the, in the third and fourth year, you really learn in almost like an apprenticeship style. So the more you see, the more you're there, the more you learn. You know, I certainly um, did interact with some MD-PhD students, had some friends that were MD-PhD. I I don't think I ever met anybody who was a PhD and then went back to do an MD. I think that's a really interesting uh, sort of progression. And I I could see that especially being helpful for certain types of specialties. I mean, dermatology is one where not only is it extremely competitive, but I think it does collect sort of people who, who like doing research in those in that area as well. you know. But med, the MD-PhD people, I mean, they were brilliant people uh, to be able to do both and sort of have that mentality. They were fortunately the ones I've met, say this goes for most of the MD-PhDs that I've ever met, has been excellent clinicians in addition to excellent scientists.
0: Yeah, I think uh, for the most part, they don't do both at the same time because that's way too much for one person at any one time. But uh, it does seem really cool that you guys are able to if you were an MD, PhD, you could work in a lab and then you also have hospital space where you have can make your rounds as I we literally had. A professor who was studying ovarian cancer who would sometimes come to our classroom in scrubs because he had just finished an operation to resect the tumor that was in one of his patients so that his lab could collect data from that and then he would come straight from there to to teach our class and teach us about ovarian cancer so i thought that was a really cool thing to be able to do i Myself wouldn't be able to do it, and I guess uh, that takes a special kind of personality, but it's cool to know that those careers are out there and that somebody really dedicated and passionate is doing it. I know that for even my MD-PhD friends, when they went back to the MD and they finished their degree, they needed to go into rotations. How was that done for you guys? Did you get a chance to pick, or was it basically chosen for you based on your scores and your chosen
1: path. Yeah. In the third year, um, it's basically chosen for you because there, there are certain requirements uh, to graduate medical school, including doing medicine, doing surgery, doing pediatrics. And there's even some requirements around the number of weeks that you spend on it. The one thing that was not picked by sort of requirements was the site that you went to. And so uh, University of North Carolina, you know, as a state organization or a state institution, they had affiliations in multiple parts of the state. So I went to Wilmington. I I'd go to Charlotte. So I got a pretty varied experience by that. And and you could choose um, sort of you could rank where you want to be. And oftentimes they would say you want to do the area that you want to go into, you should do that at the, the medical center. And then other ones that you want to learn a lot, but you may not necessarily want to have that as your career. Doing those sometimes in these community hospitals, you actually get to do and see a lot more than when you're a part of a big medical team in the medical center. During the fourth year, you have a little bit more flexibility to choose your rotations. So I actually did a rotation in pathology and radiology. I think I think it did dermatology maybe as well, just to sort of round out my education. But then, you know, also to to um, just to have a different style, see different types of medicine that maybe I didn't see during my third year. And, and they helped me learn something as well as, to be honest, maybe r- rule some things out. I decided I didn't want to be a radiologist. That was just my personal uh, choice. Um, and those electives help with that.
0: So when when I think of medical school, is there there were some teachers that I taught with uh, right after I got out of graduate school, I decided to try to be an educator and save the world that way. There there was a teacher who went on to medical school, but I think she did a doctorate uh, in osteopathy. And so that's a different path. I wonder if you have any insights on doing a traditional medical doctor, the MD, versus a doctor of osteopathy. Because I've actually had osteopathic doctors as my primary care physicians, and they were wonderful. They obviously knew what they were doing, but they just had, I guess it was a DO rather than an MD or something like that because there there's OD but I think that's a doctor of optometry so they were a DO so what do you think of that path for students who want to be a medical doctor but maybe want a different
1: path right no it's a it's a great question um you know I would say that if you went back maybe 20 years 30 years you would see that there there might be a difference and, and I'm sort of speaking in ignorance here, but I, I know that at least the, some of the things that, that the osteopathic doctors would learn would be things like manipulations. That you, you know, It's not just sort of like how chiropractors manipulate you, but you can actually do manipulation for many different types of conditions. And then they would learn everything else that the allopathic doctors would learn. But I, it seems like things have certainly come much more similar between an MD and a DO. Now, it, it, you know, you can sort of do all the things with a DO that you can do with the MD. I can think of uh, two of our department chairs that are DOs, and they're just ex- absolutely excellent. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, in the administrative side is a DO, excellent. Again, excellent doctor, excellent administrator. So I, I don't see I don't see it that much as a difference anymore. And you know, in our residency program, we take a lot of DOs as well, who then go through the, the residency program just the same as an MD would. Um, so I think that's definitely a, a viable option for people coming into this this field. I think, and sometimes it, it depends on the school. Sometimes it depends on things like MCAT scores and grades. Sometimes that can decide it. But I, I think I think taking a look at, at MD programs and DO programs, and then making your choice you know, based on what's the best fit for you, you can certainly accomplish what you want with with, uh, with both degrees.
0: That's really cool that you have uh, excellent osteopathic doctors in your department. For you personally, obviously you practice medicine, you have a license, you have to renew it every year and not get sued for malpractice and all that stuff, right? Uh, but I was just wondering if you had clinical rounds yourself, uh, if you even have time now, since you are basically your hospital's head honcho and you have these administrative and research responsibilities, do you even have
1: time to see patients like you originally wanted to do? Yep, yeah, definitely much less. Um, you know, so when I came into Loyola, I was 100 percent clinical bedside uh clinical now I'm probably you know, about 10 to 15%. And so I still rotate on the adult side in in general medicine either with residents or or by myself as a hospitalist um and then I rotate on the pediatric inpatient service with residents. And so I'm scheduled for about 6 weeks a year, between 4 and 6 weeks a year, but then I'll also occasionally pick up additional shifts um just if they need some extra help. I probably am closer to that that 6 week number uh more so than the 4 week um, um, but, you know, it's it's not a lot. It's, I'd say it's enough to keep my feet wet, but I clearly recognize my limitations as a physician. And that allow, that sort of causes me to try to pay much more attention to my residents. I actually learn a lot from from my own residents and then also ask more questions, And whether that's either to my residents, to consultants or just looking up things when I'm on service. I think that's one of the important things for somebody who doesn't do a lot of service is recognize your limitations. I also say that it's a nice way to re-energize myself. In the administrative side of medicine, you don't—you oftentimes don't get to see the gratification of the changes you make until many months and maybe even years later. But when you take care of patients, you can sort of see the decisions you're making in concert with the patient and seeing them get better. I mean, that's just a really energizing opportunity. And, and that allows me to sort of overcome fatigue and things like that when I, when I actually get to take care of patients.
0: Yeah, because it, it seems hard to quantify, but positive energy is limitless and it does have healing powers. You had broached the subject of the COVID vaccine, and I know that we've had a lot of issues with misinformation and anti-vaccine uh, sentiments, and that has delayed our exit out of this pandemic, which unfortunately is still ongoing. You hear about random variants here and there, people are still dying. so because I respect your opinion. You are a very qualified medical doctor. Give us your spiel on
1: vaccination and why it's so important. I'm a, Big believer in you know all the different types of vaccines that are out there. I mean, so influenza vaccine is, is certainly important, just like the COVID vaccine. I mean, this the studies are clear. There's the science is clear that the COVID vaccine worked and was safe um, and really didn't have any of worrisome side effects that some of the anti-vaxxers are, are spouting. You know, as with any vaccine, there's the potential for side effects, but it's not causing the level of harm that some of these anti-vaccine advocates are saying. You know, I mentioned. It, this is going to go down as one of the greatest breakthroughs in modern medicine, and it really is. I mean, this was a complete game changer. Going from COVID, which was in many cases a death sentence. I mean, I was I took care of patients that were near death. Um, I, I constantly heard about patients dying in our hospital despite all the all the care we could provide them. And then once the vaccine got here, it was just sort of a, a breath of fresh air for our clinicians. You know, I think for most of our our patients, it, it was too. You know, if I think back about the patients who were really affected in hospital during the initial stages of the pandemic, uh, it was usually people of color. Sure, we had some white patients as well, but if you think about it, who was affected the most? It was people of color, and it was often due to living arrangements. It was sort of the type of environment they lived in. And so this vaccine, in my mind, was heralded as, as really a way to, to bring about social justice as well. I mean, you're, you're ideally uh, helping protect a vulnerable population. As time has gone on, we've seen COVID really diminish in severity, which is great news. But but some of that is because we've had good rates of vaccination. People have had less severe experiences. Now, the vaccine does not prevent all COVID infections. Uh, I mean, I'm vaccinated, fully vaccinated. I, I've had COVID, but. Uh, It certainly lessens the severity of it. And so it's especially important for people who have chronic conditions. And so I've heard, you know, the administration talking about how they want to turn it to a yearly vaccine, just like influenza. I will be signing up for a yearly vaccine for influenza and COVID. If it's available, I'll take it just to protect myself and protect my family.
0: Yeah, I never used to do the flu vaccine. I am vaccinated against just about everything else that you can get a vaccine for, except probably smallpox because I'm not military or <laughs> that thing. But, uh, yeah, I remember as a kid, it was probably because it was the 80s and it wasn't as that widespread. But I feel like by then there were vaccines against the mumps. and. And the chickenpox, and I still got both because I don't think I was properly vaccinated. And that really sucked because the mumps were extremely painful and the chickenpox was itchy. And so it didn't kill me. But at the same time, it was like, well, if I had a vaccine, maybe I could have avoided all that pain. I'm glad to say I've never gotten polio because of the vaccine. I've never gotten the measles, probably because of the vaccine and the fact that everybody around me was vaccinated. And so it's not just COVID. It's like everything else. You are basically working out your immune system to say, "Okay, we've just challenged you. Kind of like pumping iron, like if you can resist the pressure of all that weight, you will get stronger and you can resist the pressure of all those viruses that are attenuated and now attacking your immune system or at least priming them. And now that, you know, COVID or whatever else is coming after you, you can actually protect yourself better against it because it is essentially a workout for your immune system. And I think that's a good point. You had broached the idea of accessibility earlier. And I was wondering what other paths your you and your hospital are trying to make to just you, you need to make healthcare affordable to everybody not just the people who can pay not just the people of a certain demographic but everybody so you can't obviously force their employers to give sick leave unless you know the workers decide to unionize and fight for that themselves but what you can do is make sure that when they do come to you they receive the same level of care that everybody else gets so what kind of mechanisms are in place at your hospital to try to make that a reality for your patients
1: you know, I, I think this is a this is an area that actually is fortunately being discussed regularly in healthcare care now. I, you know, so Loyola University Medical Center is a part of Trinity Health. And, and one of the things I, I really respect from Trinity Health right now is they are trying to take an aggressive look at uh, racism in medicine um, and try to figure out how to eliminate it as best as possible. And there have been some interesting papers, including one in New England Journal, where it talks about how some of the just the basic test we use. So like renal function is based on racist principles. Different groups are working on trying to change that. So I think when we talk about access of medicine and sort of equity in medicine, it takes many different forms. You know, one of the things that we're working on right now is in actually in partnership with Blue Cross Blue Shield, where we're, we're addressing health equity through a program they've, Blue Cross has developed. Um, one is um, really trying to create a workforce that mirrors the community. And the idea of it is subconscious bias exists. And if you're not recognizing that, or you're not sculpting your workforce to match the community, that's going to interfere with the patient's care. Um, So that's one of the things we're working on. I, I would say, you know, that is not an easy thing to do, but it's certainly part of our mission to try to come closer to what the community looks like. The other things that we're looking at is really trying to take a look at underrepresented groups in have a better understanding of, are we providing different levels of care for our patients? You know, you hear about the stories about how care is provided during childbirth for African-American women um, and white women it is different. Um, that seems like it's across medicine. And so we're trying to take a look at things like that. I will say one of the things that is really challenging for us right now is we don't do a good job of including in the medical records, people's race, their religion, even things like uh, LGBTQ status is not often in there, as as I'm sure many healthcareers are struggling with is how do you make sure that the medical record is updated appropriately for cha- transgender patients so that patients are uh, identifying their gender, um, but it may be different than the gender that that they have phenotypically, genotypically, but you know, all those things and being able to, to identify those correctly are really important in the medical records. And then once you actually are able to have correct record keeping for that stuff, then you can actually take a better look at, you know, am I providing different levels of care to uh, underrepresented minorities than, than the rest of the population? So that's sort of what we're working on now. Um, and we're specifically looking at some different types of metrics that have validity in uh, publicly reported metrics, but also would be really meaningful for patients' care. So that's one thing we're doing. I mean, we do a lot of stuff with with the community when it comes to community outreach, whether it's screening programs. Our pathology department every year has a outreach clinic where women, primarily of color, can come in get free Pap smears, free uh, cancer screening. You know, that might be the only screening they're able to to get uh, during that time. So, you know, we tr- we try to do those things in the, in the community as, as best we're able to. And then part of our core values, it is uh, uh, care for those who are, are poor. And when we talk about poor, we don't necessarily mean socioeconomic. We mean people that are considered disadvantaged populations. That's really one of the main reasons why people at Loyola really are there. It's for that core value of uh, reverence and, and helping to people who are poor.
0: I want to thank you very much for your time today, Kevin, and for all your insights as a medical doctor, a highly esteemed and head honcho type of medical doctor. <laughs>
1: been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it and would also ha- be happy to do this again. I, you know, it's a good opportunity to sort of self-reflect on how I got to where I, I, where I am now. This has been a conversation with Dr. Kevin Smith of Loyola University
0: Medical Center, and we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of App Clonal Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Ken Lund. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on social media you can find our various socials in the show notes link to dr beaker's page on apcolonel.com or you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services if you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or to inquire about apcolonel's quality products and services please send a message to service at appclonal.com. thanks for listening and we will see you on the next episode